From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is the Fun Size Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything. And asking your questions is producer Joe Russo. Joe, how are you? I am well as always, Mick. How are you? Just the same. Excellent. Uh, we've got a full mailbag today, so shall we dive in? Hot dog. Let's go. All right. Uh, we'll start with a, a, an easy one, a softball. Uh, Danny wants to know, what are your favorite genre film festivals? Oh, there are a lot of them. The Overlook yes. is really terrific. Um, and uh, let's see, Fantasia in Montreal is fantastic. The Overlook started out in Oregon at the uh, resort where they shot Stanley Kubrick's The Shining exterior. Really cool, yeah. But uh, they settled into New Orleans, which works even better, I think. Um, and Fantasia in Montreal is a truly international fest that is beautiful. Sitges is still uh, king of the hill uh, in Spain. That's a really remarkable one. I've never been to Fright Fest in the UK, uh, but I hear that that's one of the best ones. But there are so many really good ones and some of the smaller, more intimate ones like Motel Shesh in uh, Lisbon is really wonderful. And uh, Macabro in Mexico City. Uh, th there are a bunch of really good ones. Macabro is pretty darn big. Um, but uh, they're, they're filled with people who have a passion for the genre in ways that no other genre seems to be able to deliver. I, you know, going to Fantasia was such a cool experience. I mean, the fans are ravenous and they're, they're interact <laughs> with the movies. And uh, yeah, I mean, if you get a chance to go to a genre film festival and you're a horror fan, I can't recommend it enough. Yeah, it's, they're all really, really great because they're all founded on the passion for the movies rather than on a commercial basis. Absolutely. Well, speaking of film festivals, friend of the podcast and the Ethereum Film Festival's Heidi Honeycutt asks, Mick, do you have a favorite Critters puppet that you worked with? <laughs> well, 
they were all pretty similar to one another. Some of them were just little balls that rolled and uh, uh, had a, a, a core with strings attached to them to make them roll behind a truck. Some of them were hand puppets that just worked like, you know, open and closed mouths. Some of them actually had controlled eyes that would blink as well. None of them were animatronic. All of them were done by hand. And I have a couple of them here. There's a baby one on a stick where you squeeze the handle and it opens and closes the mouth. Uh, uh, I have another of the hand puppets here that both of them have decayed tremendously. But my favorite one was one that was restored by Mopop, the Museum of Pop Art up in Seattle um, that's on display there with my, my uh, thriller outfit. It's a great museum and, and it is restored beautifully uh, so that it did not decay uh, since 1988 when, uh, when it was made. So. Very cool. Kevy Bear asks, for Mick and Joe, when writing scripts, do you write with certain actors in the roles tailored to their voice? For me, I never do. Um, it, it's Sometimes it can inspire what you would do, whether you're going to get that actor or not, and usually assume you don't because timing or there are so many reasons for an actor to pass on a script that has nothing to do with how good the script or the movie will be. Um, but I'd much rather see the actors, uh, see the character in my head, and then audition actors and have a good casting director who will give you some curveballs, will throw some curveballs at you. Uh, and they bring something to it that you didn't expect. And it's often more than you expect, or at least a, a, a way to play a character that had never struck you during the writing stage. So I... I like to write the character first and then see where, where things lead. Yeah, I, I'm the same. Uh, the only experience I've had in my career yet where I knew who the actor was going to be was when we did the initial rewrite for Hard Kill, uh, when we knew that Bruce was going to be in the movie. But uh, little did we know that some of the choices we made you know, with Bruce in mind were, were going to be later rewritten uh, before production. So not a lot of those, those ideas made it into the, the final product, but we, we tried to sneak in some fun diehard homages that were uh, sadly cut, but uh, yeah. Oh, well. Um, so, but yeah, no, usually I'm the same way. I, I, and I think you're right. I mean, the casting process, that's when you get to see the character you created in your head come to life. And when you see the right actor, bring it, to life in the right way, there's nothing more exciting than that. Yeah, I remember the experience the first time I had a script uh, produced for Amazing Stories and Marty Scorsese was the director. And there's Sam Waterston and Helen Shaver doing my dialogue uh, on the set at Universal Studios. I mean, how amazing was that? Yeah. Uh, you know, the, and I didn't know who they were going to cast when it was being done. And it was it was just thrilling to see it happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, every time it still strikes me as as exciting. I mean, getting to see Bob Gunton, you know, the warden yeah. from the Shawshank Redemption, reading our dialogue, and uh, you know, just just these last couple of weeks was was pretty thrilling. So, 
I, I don't think it's something that gets old, which is which is an, a, a nice part of uh, this career. Yeah, it's go. it's new every time around. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, speaking of finding the right talent for the right project, Chris asks, "Can you tell us how Snuffy Walden came to the Stand miniseries?" Yeah, it was an unusual uh, direction because I had been working with Nicholas Pike, who had done an amazing score for Critters Two. So good that uh, Steven Spielberg's editor, Michael Kahn, used it to tempt his movies. So rather right. than us using John Williams to tempt our movies, Spielberg's using Nicholas Pike to tempt his. <laughs> um, but Stephen King knew Snuffy Walden, and he'd been doing music for uh, a TV show. I forget which one. I know Snuffy did 30-something, but I don't think that was the show. And... Interestingly, both Snuffy and King were AA members, and I think they had that in common. But King loved his music, and he wanted what he described as blue jeans music because of the Americana nature of the stand and the quest across America. Um, the idea of mostly guitar, whether electric or acoustic, and a little piano for the more emotive moments. Um, that was something King really fought for. And uh, once I met Snuffy and once we got uh, things underway and we'd been shooting for a while and started temping in some of his music, it really started to come to life. And it, it really is, you know, it's done on a small scale. We brought in some orchestration for the climax in Las Vegas, but uh, for the most part, it was Snuffy playing that magical guitar and he's so good. So that was somebody that that King really wanted to do it. And and he was right. Switching gears uh, to another one of your uh, staples, Jacob writes, working with Anthony Perkins. Um, I read it was difficult, uh, but do you have any anecdotes about working with him? It seems he was pleased with Psycho 4 after it came out. Um, I hope the experience was happier than I read of it. Well, the word difficult is a really fraught term that I don't like to use in this regard. It was a complicated relationship, but here's a young filmmaker uh, who had just made Critters 2. That was my claim <laughs> to fame, you know. Uh, and so I was the director being foisted upon uh, Tony Perkins. Now, he who, had, who also just directed Psycho 3. He had directed Psycho 3, which was a critical and financial disaster for Universal. This was for Showtime, so it wasn't a, as big a gamble, but um, they did not want him to direct Psycho 4, and he wanted to direct Psycho 4, but he agreed to star in Psycho 4, and uh, I had been recommended by John Landis, who was a friend of, of uh, Tony's and the studio, the, the executive at Universal was a guy named Ned Nall, who was in charge of the project. So I've told this story before. Um, he was always testing me, you know, because I was a young filmmaker who, like I said, my claim to fame was a little monster movie ripoff of Gremlins. So it was complicated. He was always testing me to make sure I wasn't just setting up cool shots, but really that there was an understanding to the psychological motivations be behind the character of uh, Norman Bates and the like. And it sort of came to a head with his biggest test when we were doing the scene 
where he's talking to Fran Ambrose on the talk show, the radio call-in show. And it's written in the script, which we had gone over page for page, <clears throat> that he suddenly, in a burst of pique, slams the butcher knife into the butcher board in front of him. And as we are setting it up um, and the crew is lighting and doing all this stuff, we're rehearsing it for him to, uh, to go through it so that we can finish lighting and doing all the prep for it. He said, now Mick, this butcher knife, and he started going into why it was such a silly, hoary old idea that's been done over and over and over. And I could see that there was a speech <laughs> about to be uh, begun. <laughs> so I, I basically said, Tony, let's step off the set and talk about it between the two of us so everybody else can do their work. Um, and we can go forward and shoot the scene because we're on a very tight schedule and budget as usual. So we go off the set and we talk about it literally 45 minutes about um, a one-way conversation about what he felt about that. And again, testing me to see what I would do. And the idea was we came up with something together and it was rather than a fit of peak resulting in slamming a butcher knife into a butcher block is he takes a bowl, uh, an apple out of a bowl of fruit in front of him and just snaps it in half in his anger. That's what ended up in the movie. It was a way that we could decide on something together where he felt invested in the scene even more so. And that I was capable of, of coming up with good ideas with him. And so things cooled off a little before that. Now, I need to say that working with Anthony Perkins was fantastic and a tremendous privilege, but at times it was complicated and not always easy. But everything he did was because he cared about the movie and because he cared about how the character was represented. So I wanna make sure that people don't get the idea that he was just a pain in the ass. He was a very eccentric, very talented and very intelligent actor and man. And that uh, I certainly have nothing but, but delight to have been able to work with my first movie star ever. Well, and I'll tell you that Apple scene is super memorable, you know? <laughs> well, so so this, despite, well, despite, you know, the fraught nature that got you there, sometimes those conversations and those deliberations do net out something that wasn't written and 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 helps it pop off the page yeah um, an actor a, a director is not an autocrat a director is supposed to be in tune with the creative uh thoughts of his cast his writer uh the the people involved and and that's the job of the director is to not just cast uh, messages from on high, but to collaborate with artists to make the best possible film. All right. Moving on. Bia Moda asks, do you think that the horror movies today have produced anything as good as the quote unquote rubber era, AKA the eighties? Well, the 80s weren't just the rubber era. They were also the slasher era. So there's a lot of modern horror that's a lot better than what came out in the 80s. <laughs> uh, uh, agreed that The Thing was a remarkable piece of work. The Fly was fantastic. Mm -hmm. There were amazing 
films from the 80s that that highlighted practical makeup effects. The Rick Bakers and Steve Johnsons and yeah, they created they were rock stars. <clears throat> they were rock stars and did amazing work. But the movies around them didn't always deserve the work that they were capable of doing. But you had Cronenberg, you had Carpenter, you had uh, really talented filmmakers utilizing those talents. However, these days, there's still practical makeup effects being done and being done beautifully by KNB and, and the different companies. But they are abetted by CGI. And there's some great stuff. Babadook is a great horror movie from this mm. era that, that mm. doesn't really mm. deal much with effects at all. I mean, I just saw Old, uh, the Shyamalan movie, and it combines uh, Alter Tony Gardner's Alterian's makeup effects with digital effects. Yeah, The ones that work best are the ones that are most grounded in reality. Even in the Fear Street movies, there's a lot of CGI effects that would normally have been done in the 80s by practical effects but yeah. they're quite organic and quite beautiful and it's a combination of those things that work well, together even even in nightmare cinema alejandro's head split uh yeah. is, is a combination of practical and visual effects and it's terrific yeah know? i mean you have to look at the at the budgets of the movies as well sure and often what a big budget buys you is a big cgi budget Right. Now, that's great if it's really organic stuff. But mm -hmm. still, there are big studio movies that the effects look like video games. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, that's fine. But, uh, you know, I, I know what the uh, listener is talking about because yeah well there's there's a there's a huge nostalgia drive for the 80s i mean and you were obviously interviewed in those documentaries but in search of darkness one and two yeah. i mean they're both four hour documentaries covering <laughs> yeah. the 80s horror which i watched all of and enjoyed the hell out of the movies but like, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think I think nostalgia for 80s horror is at its peak. But you also have to remember, uh, and Rotten Tomatoes did a, 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 you know, decade by decade comparison. The last decade for horror has netted the best overall reviews from critics that it's ever had, you know. But that's often the case that they are well, either better reviewed in their time. And whenever you see a sure, top sure, 100, sure, you sure. see a top 100 listing of best movies, the top 30 will be all from the last decade. Sure. You know? and, but, sure. but it's, it's definitely still a point worth taking that yeah. there's a lot of really good stuff. And it's because the platforms are so diverse now that you're not just getting teen slasher movies from the studios. You're yep. getting more thoughtful things from around the world because of Netflix and Amazon and, and you know, Shudder and all these other places that offer you a range of movies that were not available to us in the 80s. Well, and that actually leads into our next question. Uh, That's good. 24, yeah, exactly. 24 panels per second, right? Has horror cinema gone too far down the road of pandering to diehard fans between meta horror and nostalgia driven homages? Much of horror seems trapped in a fandom cycle it cannot break out of. What do you think? Well, a lot of it does, but there's a reason for it. The studios uh, give people what they want, you know, and if, if, um, 
every kind of scream or every kind of conjuring or every kind of uh, franchise is successful and people keep going, that's what they're going to get. But I think there's a lot of truly diverse uh, film out there. Um, you know, uh, Julia de Cournau's uh, new film, uh, Titan, Titan. Yeah, uh, just one at Cannes. And how often, first of all, does a horror movie win the Palme d'Or at, at absolutely. Cannes? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I don't know if it's ever, has it ever? Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. And also, a history book next to me, I'd have to pull yeah. it out. But and also, uh, a female the second woman. Yeah, second the second woman. female yeah. filmmaker to win. Uh, and with a horror film, that's pretty remarkable and pretty great. And not a uh, tribute to the 80s. I mean, the 80s were a lot of fun, but people who are making films now came of age in that time and often reference that time. And when you come of age, those are the movies and the music and the TV shows that stick with you for sure. the rest of your life, you know, your, your wonder years. Yeah. Well, we were just talking with upcoming guests, Benson and Moorhead, off air about how wonderfully curated Shudder is. And I think, you know, if you are looking for a more diverse palette of horror, I think that's a great place to start. And I say that not just because they've been a sponsor on the show in the <laughs> yeah. past, and hopefully will be again soon, but genuinely because I believe it. I mean, I've been a subscriber since well before we even signed our deal with Nightmare Cinema with them. And yeah. uh, I think I think there's so many interesting, creative little movies that they've, they've been able to give life to uh, that are much more so than just the fandom cycle feeding itself. Yeah, yeah. I, I think anybody who really cares about the genre owes it to themselves to expose themselves to something more than 80s uh, tributes or the 80s movies themselves. There's a whole lot of horror out there. Absolutely. So get out there and start exposing yourselves. All right. <laughs> Within legal limits, of course. <laughs> Here's, here is a long one from Lee. Uh, it's an unpopular theory for the ravening pursuits, but here we go. I have to add the caveat that I myself love fil these films, but do you think we as adults loud the classic monsters as being fantastically portrayed because of the fact that we saw them when we were children? Do you think that the universal monsters... Uh, are actually good and great movies, Mick, or are they just nostalgia driven like we were talking about the 80s nostalgia just a moment ago? Yeah, this really feeds directly off of what we were talking about before. Of course, what we see in our childhood remains with us. And, and you know, but there is a difference. You know, the directing of Dracula is not nearly as sophisticated as the directing of Frankenstein. James Whale was a much more cinematic director, um, whereas uh, Todd Browning was somebody who directed more like a stage show. Uh, there were more static cameras and not as much movement and use yep. of the tools of cinema. That said, those were groundbreaking films. So we don't just embrace them because we loved them when we were young but also because they changed the course of film history. And movies evolved, sometimes better, sometimes not, but 
these remain as, as touchstones in the progress of film history. And so some of them are really great. You know, if you were a kid when you saw Halloween or Nightmare on Elm Street, all those things, those were great films then and they hold up now and they also help change the course of horror cinema history. So of course we embrace bad movies too because our memories of them are beautiful. And that's a great thing. But there have been many times when I've revisited films from my youth that I loved then that don't really hold up so well now. But so it's it's a very valid point and it's true in a lot of cases, but magical movies find their way into your psyche and don't leave them for a reason, uh, more than just that they, they caught you at the time, but there was something m more deeply rich than than everything else that you saw at the time. Very well said. Uh, since it was Tommy McLaughlin's birthday recently, I thought this question was appropriate. Uh, Samville writes, She-Wolf of London is one of my childhood favorite TV series. I would love to hear more about how this one came together. Well, it's interesting because uh, I didn't stick with it very long. Um, the same company that produced uh, Psycho 4 for Universal, UT, UTE, uh, Universal Television Entertainment, they were doing stuff for cable rather than for broadcast. So they had created a new uh, Leave it to Beaver for TBS, uh, and they we did Psycho 4 for Showtime. And so they said, we have a bunch of titles in the Universal Library and would you like to choose one uh, to turn into a series? And so I went through and I thought, She-Wolf of London. And they told me, don't make it like the movie, just use the title because we don't want it to be like the movie and have to pay those rights, I guess, ah. so, whatever. So <clears throat> Tommy and I uh, have been friends forever and we co-wrote uh, an episode of amazing stories that Bob Zemeckis directed. And I thought it would be great to have a partner writing this pilot. And so we just came up with something new that really turned into kind of an X-Files or the others later on that Spielberg did where it's people investigating the paranormal. And it, one of them happens to be wanting to investigate the paranormal because she's been bitten by a werewolf. And every 30 days, um, you know, for uh, other than the usual reasons, she uh, gets a little out of control. And uh, so Tommy and I wrote that. And the pilot was shot in, in Bristol, England. And it was fantastic. The show was made there. Then um, they asked Tom to do another show. Uh, they came from outer space, which he wrote and he left to do that. So we needed to bring in showrunners and they came in and turned it into something a lot different from what we intended. And it went in a different direction. And uh, later on, it moved production to Los Angeles and they changed the title to Love and Curses. And it, it lost a lot of the magic of the, the British settings, but I'm still really happy with the pilot. I think that turned out really well, but um, I wasn't really involved in the series after that. There you have it. Well, Mick, we've wrapped another edition of Ask Mick Anything. Well, thank you, Joe, and let everybody know how they can get us our, their questions. 
Well, for next time, you can send questions to at PM on Instagram and Twitter, or you can send them to me at Joe Russo tweets and on Twitter and at Joe Russo Graham on Instagram. All right. Look forward to the next one. Thanks, Joe. Thank you, Mick. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris on the Dread Podcast Network. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app.